0: Let's go ahead and, and look at 1 Corinthians 5 here, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. For the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, But with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, this morning we do want to pause and and just honor and glorify your name for answered prayer. You have provided for the W family over and above what we could have asked or imagined. You have provided for them in spite of many obstacles, in spite of some doubts. And you've done so through your people. Not through a gimmick, not through a sales pitch, but through the, uh, just the generosity of heart that is put in place by your Holy Spirit. No other group of people could say that this sort of thing happens. And yet here we are uh, in the midst of your work. And and it's a miracle. It's amazing. And so we want to thank you for your provision O God. Father, I pray uh, for all of our cross-cultural workers. We think right now of the e-buyers as they our home on a brief time of leave, and uh, will be joining us next week. We ask that you would refresh their hearts and that you would use them in our lives and us in theirs. We pray for Pastor Guy as he is uh, on the other side of the world right now in New Zealand ministering there, and uh, we ask that you would give him good health and a focused mind and a full heart so that he can minister and bear fruit for your glory. Uh, Lord, we pray for those who are ministering across this campus, our nursery workers and children's church teachers, our ushers and greeters and others, and then for those ministering across our city as they preach the gospel to their various congregations. Father, glorify your name through your church. And Lord, as we turn our attention to a passage that's sobering, difficult to read, Harsh, it seems at times, I pray that you would conform our affections to your own and that we would not come to you with excuses and defenses, but with open hearts and open hands ready to receive even the most difficult things that you say, trusting that your way is best and we do not need to defend or protect ourselves from you. We just need to give ourselves to you. Lord, I pray that you would work through your word today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most significant events in world history, in recent world history, was caused by an organism too small to be seen by the naked eye. The great famine of the late 1840s killed a million people in Ireland and sent another two million abroad as refugees. There were sociological and economic causes, of course. But the agent of death was a tiny spore known as the late blight. It decimated potato crops and left families starving. Scientists call it phytophthora infestans, plant-destroying infestation. Spores carried on the wind land on the leaves of a mature potato, or tomato plant just days or weeks away from harvest time. In ideal conditions, its life cycle takes about five days. It destroys the plant, renders the crop useless, and sends a cloud of death into the atmosphere to repeat the process. While a variety of strategies for mitigation have been tried, to this day the only real solution for late blight is vigilant scouting, Early detection and the swift destruction of infected plants. One infected plant, you see, can destroy an entire crop. If you were a potato farmer, I don't think we have any potato farmers in this room, but if you were a potato farmer and you walked out into the fields one day and you noticed the dark green, black, or brown spots on the leaves, you wouldn't go back into your house and play solitaire and just while away the day. You would get busy. Anyone with any sense would immediately see that removing a couple plants would be far preferable to losing the entire crop. Because just a little bit of blight can ruin All of your work. You have no choice. In our study of 1 Corinthians, we've already seen that the church is like God's field. It's like God's vineyard, God's garden, sanctuary. Here in this passage, Paul addresses the reality that sometimes the field of the church becomes infected with blight, with unrepentant, outward, high-handed immorality. Amazingly, though, the Corinthians are proud of themselves. They've boasted about their gracious acceptance of that which even the pagans disallow. And in doing so, they've become like a landowner, bragging at the feed store that he's got a nice patch of blighted potato plants over in one corner off in the back pasture. How ridiculous would that be? Shameful. This is how the church of Corinth has chosen to operate. There is a man... Who calls himself a brother, a member of the church, in good standing with everybody there, and everybody knows that he is living in unrepentant sin, but they all just look away. He is infected with a blight, but no one says or does a thing. It struck me as I was studying this passage that uh, it requires almost no explanation. We read it just a few minutes ago, and you understood just about everything that Paul says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And yet, how many churches called to be holy, invited to be the temple of the Holy Spirit, have chosen purposefully and repeatedly to just ignore the plain teaching of Scripture in this matter? How many churches just explain it away? And what about us? Can we honestly say that we are walking in obedience to Christ in this matter? This morning, as well as next Sunday, it's going to take us two weeks to get through this chapter. We need to stop and carefully consider the clear instruction Paul's giving us. Remember, this isn't just for the the church in Corinth. This letter is written not only to the church in Corinth, but to all believers everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's for us too. And I think as we look at this passage, we'll find that like the Corinthians, we have no reason to boast. In fact, there may be occasion that we have to mourn. Here is Paul's message in a nutshell. You must remove unrepentant church members. You must remove unrepentant church members. It's that simple. So let's work through this message bit by bit. Again, we will not get through all of it this morning. We'll get started, but there will be loose ends at the end of this message that will not be tied up again until the end of next week's message. First of all, You must remove unrepentant church members. You must remove unrepentant church members. What I mean is that Paul places the responsibility squarely on the shoulders of the congregation to remove unrepentant church members. If I were to say, we must do this, you would say, Jake, that sounds great. And what you would be thinking in your mind is, I'm sure the elders know what to do. The leaders know what to do. They will take care of that. But that's not what this text teaches. It teaches us that it is the congregation's responsibility to fulfill this duty. And you may not delegate it to anyone else. Let me briefly show you how how I'm personally arriving at this conclusion. Uh, There are essentially three important pieces of evidence supporting the assertion that discipline is the duty of the congregation as a whole. Uh, First... Consider the grammatical evidence. Throughout this text, Paul consistently employs the second person plural. Uh, That means you all. Y'all, right? When he says you, it's actually you all. When he issues a command, it's a second person plural. You all cleanse out the old leaven. You all purge the evil person from your midst. Who are these pronouns referring to? Well, it's very simple. Who is this letter addressed to? He tells us explicitly in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, he's addressing the local church, the members, the saints of the church in Corinth. Whose responsibility is it to engage in this duty? It is you all, the members of the church, the congregation. Secondly, consider the details of our text itself. Notice what Paul specifically calls for in verses 4 and 5. He says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man. There it is, as plain as day. When ought the church to engage in this duty? At the annual conference of the pastors and the messengers? No. Behind closed doors in an elders' meeting? No. In some sort of ecclesiastical courtroom? No, when you are assembled, when the church, the congregation gathers as the temple of the Holy Spirit, you are to deliver this man. The church cannot delegate this responsibility to its leaders or to anybody else. It is a function of the gathered church. Third, consider how other texts support this assertion, that it is the congregation's duty to engage in discipline. In Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, for example, Jesus himself addresses a somewhat similar scenario. In that text, the matter is hypothetical. This is a real situation. Jesus speaks of a hypothetical situation. He also speaks of a matter that's private between two individuals. So in that respect, it is different from the one in front of us here in 1 Corinthians 5. However, he says... That if the man doesn't repent, if the person who sinned doesn't repent, if he doesn't turn back from that sin and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, and change his approach, then he says you're to take two or three others, and if he he doesn't listen to the two or three others, then you're supposed to bring him to the church. Not to the elders, not to the denominational headquarters, to the church. And Jesus says that if the man continues in sin after the church as a whole admonishes them to change, then he ought to be removed from the congregation. In other words, Jesus agrees with Paul. The congregation is responsible to engage in discipline. This duty may not be handed to another. This is also in keeping with another passage in Paul's writing to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, Paul speaks of another matter of discipline in the church in which there was a man who had caused disunity of some kind. In that case, uh, he had been disciplined and removed from the membership role of the church. And Paul writes to them and he says, he's repentant now and, and the, the discipline that was inflicted by the majority is enough. In other words, What you've done, church, by sort of a majority vote, what you have enacted as a congregation is good, but it's now time to restore him. So the evidence is clear, in other words, that it is the role of the congregation to remove unrepentant church members. Now, in spite of this clear scriptural guidance, you might be thinking of some reasons to object. It's fairly obvious that most churches in the English-speaking world just don't do this. And they offer a handful of reasons why. You might say, for example, a lot of the members in the church are unqualified to discern right from wrong in cases of discipline. It would be better to leave these matters with someone who has more training. Quite apart from the fact that this objection fails to deal with the clear instruction laid out in the passage, I would argue that the average church member is very much qualified to discern right from wrong in many cases. In fact, consider the track record of untrained Christians in comparison with seminary-trained clergy. Just think about decisions that have been made and the the side that the average church member was on in comparison with the trained clergy super-intelligent, intellectual clergy. In the fundamentalist modernist controversy, for example, in the northern United States taking place in the middle of the last century, was it the average Christian who began to question the teachings of the Bible or was it the educated clergy? It wasn't the average Christians. What about the debates about gender and sexuality in our day? Who is most committed to the scripture? Is it the western churches with their PhDs and their Ivy League degrees? Or is it the poor, barely educated pastors in the global south like Africa? You see, quite often obedience is not a matter of the intellect or education or even maturity. Often it's quite clear the difference between right and wrong. You don't need to have a seminary education to know That it's wrong to have sex outside of marriage. You don't need to have a seminary education to know that stealing is wrong. Or that a lifestyle of drunkenness or drug addiction is wrong. Every Christian knows that. You might have tricked yourself into thinking it's okay because you want to excuse some behavior you don't want to give up. But you know what you're doing. It's not a matter of the intellect or your education or your training. It's obvious. The congregation is more than qualified when working together in patient unity to walk in obedience to the Bible. It's not complicated, it's just costly. Another objection I've heard is that the congregation must not be ultimately responsible for discipline because they cannot know all the facts of the case. To bring them up to speed would be distracting and tedious, therefore better to ask the elders or other leaders to deal with these matters. Now, to be sure, I don't deny life is complex and there are difficult cases, but you have to admit there are often cases that are not difficult or complex. If a man is beating his wife, for example, I don't really care whether he suffered trauma as a child or whether he's addicted to pain medication or whether he's an alcoholic or whether he's depressed because he just lost his job, at the end of the day, he just has to stop it. It can't happen. The same is true with the case Paul mentions here in the church at Corinth. We might have all sorts of questions about this man. We don't know very much about him at all. We don't know whether this man is the same approximate age as the woman that he's with. We don't know whether his father has already divorced the woman when the two got together. We don't know whether they committed adultery while the woman was still married. We we don't know the answer to those questions, but here's the point. The Corinthians do know the answers. They know exactly what's going on. It's been done in broad daylight. They know all the circumstances, and Paul says it's clear what you ought to do. My point is that the existence of difficult, complicated cases do not excuse The congregation from our duty to act when the path of obedience is clear. The congregation is responsible to discipline its members and may not delegate its duties. But there's still another objection that I've heard many times and it goes something like this. Pastor Jake, other churches don't do this. Other churches do not operate this way. Of course, that's very true. Many denominations have a sort of judicial hierarchy if someone's living in unrepentant sin, it's the elders who exercise discipline. And if that guy feels like he's been treated unfairly, he can appeal to an ecclesi- excuse me ecclesiastical or denominational court of appeals. Baptist churches, folks, have been different historically. In fact, this very issue is one of the things that made Baptist churches Baptist churches. That's a whole other topic we could get into, and we won't. But they recognize the authority and the responsibility of the congregation not to choose the color of the carpet or the paint on the walls, but to care for the spiritual health of their own church family. However, in recent years, for about a generation or so, maybe more, even Baptist churches have either discarded this practice altogether or strayed far from the clear teaching of Scripture on these matters. But to this objection, let me just respond in two ways. First of all, other churches, you know what I'm going to say. They're not the standard. If they went and jumped off the cliff, okay, where were you going to go? The other churches are not the standard. If they're not doing what the Bible says, that's between them and the Lord. You do what Jesus tells you to do. But on the other hand, let me just say, and I don't mean to be unkind, but let me just point out an obvious thing. There are literally thousands, thousands, probably tens of thousands of churches, maybe hundreds of thousands, that you don't know anything about, that you have never heard of. Like, no one else does it this way. We say things like that. And I would just encourage you to recognize that the no one else is like a very small group of churches that you know about, maybe 10, maybe 20 or 30. There are some church history buffs out there, and there's some cross-cultural workers out there, and if you broaden your sample to include faithful congregations from the last 2,000 years, or perhaps faithful congregations all across the globe today, then you would see that this objection doesn't hold carry any weight. It's just not true. You see, at the end of the day, it would be better for all of us if we would just admit. That regardless of what the Bible says, we just don't want to engage in discipline because it's painful and it's uncomfortable, and we just don't want to do it. Isn't that the case? Isn't that the truth? Just admit, you're looking for excuses. It's the congregation's duty. It's the congregation's responsibility, not the pastor, not the elders, not the denomination, not the small group leaders. It's yours. It's ours. And if we don't like it, we need to just admit it. But better yet, let's stop making excuses and let's walk in obedience. Because if we stop pushing back against what the Bible says and start walking in obedience, I think we'll begin to see the glorious wisdom of God's plan. Do you see, think about this folks, do you see how when the congregation takes its responsibility seriously, this prevents abuse and protects the members of the church. Where, where are the main problems with discipline in the church? One of the main problems is abusive, controlling, manipulative leaders, right? Haven't you heard of this happening? Maybe it's happened in your own church family in the past. A church leader Overdoes it. He makes it personal. He lords it over the flock and dominates and manipulates everybody. But if the church, the congregation, is walking in obedience in this matter and fulfilling its duty, then this is impossible. Because the pastor doesn't have the authority to take discipline that far. He can't remove somebody from the church. He doesn't have that kind of authority. It's the congregation that has that authority. Jesus gave it to you. This is how it's supposed to work. I'll give you an example. Recently, a brother shared with me uh, that his congregation had a very difficult discipline case. And they had a meeting about it. And they, the elders had walked with this person. They tried to help him get back on uh, the path of obedience. And, and the man refused. I don't know what the specifics were. But finally, they got to a point where he just wasn't listening. And they, and they said, okay, uh, congregation, uh, it's time. We've got to remove this guy from our membership role. And the church voted against the elders. And the reason why was not because the elders were in the wrong. The reason why was because they were imploring them, let's give more chances to this person to repent. You see, this is how it's supposed to work, church. This is how it's supposed to work. This is God's people taking responsibility for one another. It's the congregation's duty to engage in discipline, and this duty... May not be delegated, you, church, must remove unrepentant church members. Secondly, you must remove unrepentant church members. In other words, this is not an option. There's no opting in or opting out. This isn't an old-fashioned historical novelty belonging to churches of the past. It's not something we graduate out of as mature, grace-filled, modern Christians who know they aren't supposed to judge. No, you must remove unrepentant church members. And this passage offers three reasons why. Reason number one. First, because there may be no other way To rescue an unrepentant sinner. There may be no other way to rescue an unrepentant sinner. Did you catch what Paul says in verse 5? He says, Deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Why? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. In other words, this is life and death. If you neglect this duty, someone's very life, their eternal soul may hang in the balance. Most of us are close to someone who has dealt with cancer. Maybe you've dealt with cancer or are dealing with cancer right now. You know how it goes. The oncologist sits you down. He says, here's the deal. You've got cancer. And people in your situation who don't do anything don't live very long. But if you want to live, you're going to have to do something radical. We're going to have to do surgery, and then you're going to have to do chemotherapy, and then we're going to have to do radiation. It's extreme. It's difficult. It's costly. It's painful. But that's what you have to do if you want to beat this. So what do you do? Well, it depends on the circumstances. But often what do we do? We say, when do we start? It's better to deal with the devastation of chemo than to be killed by cancer. And sometimes, folks, that's the situation in the church. It's better to deal with discipline than it is to be left to die apart from Christ. This is life and death. So Paul says, you go to the extreme. You do something radical. You deliver this man over to Satan. We'll talk more about this next week. But what he's saying is, you remove him from the church family to the point where he knows he's not in the family anymore. He's in the realm that's ruled by the devil. Why? Because it just might save his soul. Now, I know your mind is screaming, but what about fill in the blank? So let's talk about those doubts. Say, Jake, first of all, I thought we were saved by faith alone. In other words, here's a guy who presumably made a profession of faith, was baptized as a believer and welcomed as a member of the church, and now you're telling me that he's going to hell because he's sleeping with his father's wife. That doesn't seem like the gospel that I'm familiar with. What happened to once saved, always saved? Now, let me make this as simple as I can. It is possible, folks, this is very important. It's possible... To make a profession of faith, get baptized, join a church, and not really be a Christian at all in your heart. Do you know that that's the case? That is absolutely what the Bible teaches. This is a real thing. The Bible's clear that when a man is born again, the Holy Spirit indwells him and he is a new creation. And that begins to look like something in his life. Jesus taught this. He said, a good tree bears good fruit. In other words, a bad tree bears bad fruit. In other words, the reason why a person is living like a heathen may be because he's not a Christian. Paul taught this. He told the Galatians that the works of the flesh are obvious, and the people who embrace them are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. John taught this. He says in 1 John, No one who is truly born of God makes a practice of sinning. But here's the problem. What we do is we explain away these texts. We say, when the church sees one of its own bearing bad fruit, when the church sees one of its own manifesting the works of the flesh, When the church sees one of its own making a practice of sinning and the church does nothing, this is what we're saying as a congregation. We're saying, I know the Bible teaches that a person who does those things isn't a true believer in Christ, but we disagree with the Bible. We're going to keep pretending like you're living like a Christian even though you're not. The Bible says you won't inherit the kingdom of God, but we know better you will inherit the kingdom of God. This is what we're saying as a church when we refuse to obey. When we refuse to act in obedience to this passage, it's like we're reading someone's chart and the chart says this guy has cancer and we're supposed to tell the patient about the cancer, but we don't want to upset him and we don't want to have a difficult conversation with somebody about that and so we keep our mouths shut and we tell him he's fine and we send him home to die. Say, I don't think this talk of discipline is very loving, Pastor Jake. That's because your mind is swimming in the values of the world, friend. You want to know why you keep your mouth shut when you see your brother pursuing a lifestyle of unrepentant sin? You want to know why you gossip about the church down the road that expects its members to walk in holiness? You want to know why you complain about the mean elders who had the gall to intervene when a fellow church member was stuck in sin? I'll tell you why. It's not because you are so loving. It's not because you love that sinning brother or sister. It's because you love the praise of men. It's because you love yourself. You don't love the one that you're refusing to confront. You hate him. If you loved him, you would have the hard conversation. It may be the thing that saves his life. You say, but Jake, isn't there anything else we can do? Do we have to remove him? Yes, of course, there are many other things that we can do. Uh, There are many things short of removing someone from our church. This is a last resort after all the other options have been exhausted. This is a specific situation in the life of the church in Corinth in which all those other options have been exhausted. Uh, it may be the case that we need to go to a Professing brother, and say, Friend, you're walking in disobedience, and every time we've tried to confront you about it, in spite of all the ways we've tried to help, you keep getting back on the path of unrighteousness, and you do that again and again, and you try different people and different ways of approaching the conversation. But there may come a time, friends, there may come a time when we have to say, We just don't see evidence that you're a Christian, and you are removed from our church fellowship. That may be the very conversation he needs in order to wake up. And folks, you must do this. You must do this not only because it may be the thing that rescues an unrepentant sinner, but secondly, you must do this because if you don't, the poison will spread. The poison will spread. Paul asks in verse 6, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? What does that mean? By the way, he asks the Galatians the same question in Galatians chapter 5 when he's talking about the way false teaching spreads in the church. Here's, he's, here he's talking about how unrepentant sin spreads in the church. I'm not a baker, but I do know how it works. He's painting a word picture for us. You're making bread, you take all the ingredients, you mix them together, and you take a tiny bit of yeast or a little pinch of sourdough And you knead it into the lump of bread dough. You set it aside and wait. And what happens? Before long, that leavening agent uh, spreads throughout the entire loaf. This is the picture that he's painting for us. And Paul says, if you don't do anything, if you don't walk in obedience to what I'm telling you to do, then this is exactly what's going to take place in the church. This little tiny bit of blight is going to spread throughout the entire field. This little bit of leaven is going to spread throughout the entire loaf. When we allow unrepentant sin to fester, when we refuse to face it and deal with it before long, it poisons the whole congregation. You say, Jake, it's none of my business what he does. It will be very soon. This was the problem with some of the churches in the book of Revelation. They were doing okay, but they had some greedy people teaching things that were contrary to the gospel of Christ, and the church was not dealing with it, and the problems were starting to spread like gangrene. And Jesus says, he tells the church in Revelation, he says, if you don't do this, if you don't deal with this, I'm going to go to war against you. Isn't that what we've seen time and time again in the churches of our nation? We've allowed the leaven of immorality and the leaven of greed and the leaven of idolatry and the leaven of false teaching to just stay put and fester. It's the kind of thing that happens subtly, imperceptibly, until it's too late. And Paul is saying in this passage if you Shirk your duty. If you try to put it off, if you try to say it's the pastor's problem or it's the elder's problem, then you are allowing a blight to spread and before long the whole field might be ruined. Why is it that our witness as a church in America has grown cold? Why is it that our numbers dwindle? Why is it that our children walk away from the faith? Why is it that we languish for the greener years when we saw a lot of fruit? Is it possible that we've not cleared away the old leaven? And that leaven has spread in the congregation. Maybe it's because when we know we ought to say something, that we ought to do something, we make excuses. Instead, let's not make excuses. Let's obey. You must do this because it may be the only thing that will save that unrepentant brother. And because if you don't, the poison's going to spread. But there's a third reason why. Third reason, number three, you must remove unrepentant church members because Christ has been sacrificed to rescue us from slavery to sin. Christ has been sacrificed to rescue us from slavery to sin. Remember how Paul reasons throughout this letter. He doesn't say, you're doing something wrong, you've got to change and do something right. No, he says, you're doing something wrong, and there's gospel truth that you're forgetting. We need to remind you about that, and that changes the way that you behave moving forward. Here's the gospel truth. What does he do? He takes us back to a pivotal moment in the history of God's people. Moses, Skipper read about this uh, just a few minutes ago. Moses and a million Israelites are living in Egypt, enslaved to a wicked Pharaoh who would just as soon exterminate them. God tells Moses, I'm going to get glory over Pharaoh. He's going to know who I am. So he begins to put pressure on Pharaoh, and he sends these powerful signs demonstrating his rule over all the gods of Egypt. But Pharaoh doesn't listen. He says, I'm not going to let your people go. And so God says to Moses, I'm going to send one final plague. I'm going to send the angel of death, the messenger of my judgment throughout the whole land, and he's going to kill the firstborn son of every household, and no one is going to be exempt unless their redemption has been purchased by the blood of a spotless sacrificial lamb. Now, that lamb, for centuries, understand, was symbolic. It was a picture of a greater sacrifice, the real lamb of God. And Paul says in this passage that the symbol has gone away because the thing symbolized has come. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus was killed at the Passover feast. And Paul says, that wasn't by accident. That was part of God's plan. He was killed at that time because that's who he is. He is the Passover lamb. And it's through his death that God's people, all of you, not just Jews, but all the Gentiles too, are redeemed and bought out of slavery and rescued to have fellowship with God in the land. But during that feast... Moses commanded all the people, clear out the old leaven. Why? Because that leaven represented their old life of slavery to sin, of slavery to the world, the idolatry, the oppression, the chains, the helplessness. He said, get rid of it. Come live free. Come live out your identity as servants of God, as God's redeemed people, his treasure, rather than Satan's slaves. Here's what Paul's saying. He says, if you allow unrepentant sin to take root in your church, what you're saying is that you'd rather go back to slavery in Egypt than to pursue the promises of God. But folks, Christ gave his life for us. Christ bought us from that lifestyle. Christ redeemed us out of Egypt. Christ defeated death and he defanged the devil. So how can we go back? It just doesn't make sense. If we understand what God has done for us in Christ, then to allow these sorts of things to happen just doesn't make sense. Christ, our Passover lamb, is already sacrificed for you, so clear away the leaven and worship him and fellowship with him in holiness and purity. Say, but Jake, I thought God accepts us just the way we are. Who told you that? See, the way we are is rebellious and Satan-like. God is jealous for us. He wants us out of those chains. He doesn't want us to keep living the way we are. He wants us to live the way he made us to be. He doesn't want to leave us the way we are because the way we are is wrong. The way we are is a caricature. It's a sinister, funhouse mirror version of the thing that God made us to be. He loves us too much to leave us like that. So he sent his one and only son to lay down his perfect life as a spotless sacrifice so that we might walk away from the way we are and follow Christ. Do you see how a deep understanding of Christ crucified puts all the pieces into place and helps us grasp who we really are? Do you see how obedience just makes sense when we recognize all of these truths? If you're here today and you're not a Christian, first of all, we are so glad you're here. And you've already gotten more than you bargained for. And I just want to acknowledge, I get that you may sincerely believe that to love somebody means to affirm everything that they want to do. But that's not love. You need to know that. That's a fake love. Real love is what God shows us. Real love means God, the maker of all people, Going after his wayward creatures, people he made to bring him glory who are trying to go their own way. He goes after us and he pulls us out of a lifestyle of slavery and sets us free at a a great cost to himself. Sin is killing you. It's killing you. And God loved us so much that he gave his son to set people free like you and me. That's love. You don't need God to accept you the way you are. You need God to rescue you. From the direction you're headed. But, believer, how can we reject the love of Christ and say that we're more compassionate than He is? I accept everyone, Pastor Jake. Well, you must be more loving than Jesus. Maybe we need to stop boasting. Maybe we need to stop being puffed up and arrogant about how much so called grace we're showing. Maybe it's time we do what Paul says here, to do here in this passage. Maybe it's time we mourned. Now, we don't have time to complete the teaching this week, and I know I'm leaving a lot of threads loose, just lying there on the ground. There's a lot more to be said. But you cannot deny that this is something you, believer, must do. You must, for the sake of your brother's soul, for the sake of the purity of the church, for the sake of the gospel, you say, honestly, you're right, Jake, but people are going to hate us if we do this. Go back to Jesus. He was hated. You say, I I know, but people will think we're crazy. I I know. People thought Jesus was out of his mind, too. Say, well, people might get upset and leave the church. People didn't like what Jesus said either, and they left him all the time. People might say unkind things about us in town. They slandered Jesus too because, listen, you can obey this passage. You know why? Because everything that makes it hard to obey, Jesus has already walked through that. And you know what else? He loves you. You are his treasure. And if that reality becomes more real to you than the love of all the people out in the world, then you can do it. You can do what God has called us to do. He loves you. You're precious to him because the church is his temple. It's like a lampstand in his sanctuary. Revelation 1 tells us the son of God walks among the lampstands. He's with his church. He's with us. He's here. And he's giving you the authority and the power and the boldness and the faith to walk in obedience. You say, Jake, I I don't know how to do this. Okay. Okay. We'll talk more about this next week. But for now, perhaps our first response should come from verse 2. I don't want you to be arrogant anymore, Paul says. You need to mourn. And perhaps we can say, I have every reason to mourn. I've been proud. I've been puffed up. I've made excuses for myself when at the end of the day, I just, if I'm honest, I just don't want to do what God has told me clearly in his word that he wants me to do. And if that's the case, I would just want to encourage us as we move to a time of response, let's just take a moment to be silent before the Lord and ask God, show me and help me to walk in obedience and mourning. Let's bow before him together.